Ready? We're gonna do this, kid. Let's be excited. Let's be. Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alice's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Handful of things we're going to get into today in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. And the first thing that I kind of wanted to get into was the thought of the core four when it comes to the Yankees. And there is a ton of discussion about the impact that a ton of the Yankees that were part of that dynasty and the impact that they had on sports and the rest of the team. But it's centered around the four players, Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter, Andy Pettit, and Jorge Posada. And I got no issue with Jeter. I got no issue with Mariano. You're talking about two of the best players ever play their respective positions and together they were the core of what made the Yankees what they were. Problem I have is how do you talk about the core four of the New York Yankees and not mention Bernie Williams? I think it's negligent. I think it is for whatever reason just a ridiculous thought that the Yankees would not have been what they were if it wasn't for Jorge Posada and Andy Pettit. Now, Andy Pettit left the Yankees. He went to the Houston Astros. Yes, he came back. That's where he finished his career. You're going to remember Andy Pettit as a Yankee. Jorge Posada was a good player. Not a great player. He ended up having over a decade as a solid player. Came up with some big hits for the Yankees. But the hits that Jorge Posada came up with were nowhere on the same level of that of Bernie Williams. Bernie Williams was a Yankee when the Yankees weren't good. Was one of the young players that was playing for Stump Merrill even before Buck Showalter was the manager there. And you keep hearing this core four, core four, like the Yankees and their dynasty of the late 90s would not have been what it was. Sure, they needed Jeter. Sure, they needed Mariano. But they needed Bernie Williams before they needed Jorge Posada. They needed Bernie Williams more than they needed Andy Pettit. And you know what? You throw in the names of Paul O'Neill and Tino Martinez, maybe a little bit on a lesser level, Scott Brocious. You think of some of the pitchers that were there from David Cohn to David Wells, Roger Clemens, you know, Jimmy Key, you know, the first year in 96. It was the example of a true team, a team that was assembled. And we understand that the Yankees were able to build through their farm system because George Steinbrenner was kind of away. He was suspended by Major League Baseball, the whole Howie Spira thing. And the Yankees end up being what they are because they're able to bring in a lot of good young players. But one of them was Bernie Williams. And if Bernie Williams had not been part of what the Yankees were in the latter part of the 1990s, we were not talking about the core four. So I think it's a silly argument 
And I mentioned it kind of a little, you know, little needles here and there saying, hey, you keep talking about the core four, but what about Bernie Williams? I think it's ridiculous that you talk about those Yankees teams and center them around anybody else outside of Jeter and Mariano to mention one other name before you mention Bernie Williams. The center fielder, the middle of the order hitter, the prime all-star year after year. And I'm sorry, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada couldn't hold Bernie Williams' jockstrap. So anybody who wants to have this documentary about the core four and the Yankees, better make it about Bernie Williams. Because the Yankees, outside of Mariano, outside of Jeter, do not get anywhere if it isn't for Bernie Williams. So staying on baseball, and this kind of ticks me off too, you hear the discussion that Major League Baseball is going to go from a 40-round draft to a five-round draft in 2020. Now, I understand taking the draft down a little bit. You know, in baseball, you're talking about, I got exactly last year, 1,217 players were taking over 40 rounds of the draft last year. It's time to, to reduce it a little bit. It's time to drop the amount of rounds that you have. But you go from 40 to 5. You go from 1,217 players taken last year to now, it looks like somewhere around 167 are going to get taken this year. So you obviously do the math. You're talking about 1,050 players that are not going to be drafted by a Major League Baseball team. Now, the first thing you think about, you say, well, once you get past a certain round, it probably the odds are stacked against the players if they're going to make it from you know rookie ball to the lowest level of the minor leagues all the way through to high A ball to double A to triple A and eventually play Major League Baseball. Obviously, the percentages of players that are drafted in the 40th round, the 30th round, the 20th round. And if you want to go all the way back to the 10, 10 rounds or more. But I'm sure there's some quality players in rounds 6 through 10. And year after year, you see a considerable amount of players that were drafted later on in a draft. Sometimes they're high school players. You may have a high school player with a full ride getting ready to go to college and he doesn't expect to get drafted. He gets drafted, he decides to sign. And his talent shines through, he becomes a major leaguer. How many players do you see that are drafted in later rounds that end up having impacts on a major league baseball team? I'm going to hit one point here and then get into the meat of what I wanted to talk about when it comes to this draft. You start, about, you start talking about the players that are taken in the sixth or eighth round. You think of a guy like Jacob DeGrom, two-time Cy Young Award winner, Paul Goldschmidt, one of the best first basemen in all of Major League Baseball. Those players, in the, if they were available in the 2020 draft, may not be drafted at all. So I do think, you know, there's going to be some, you know, brushback when it, you talk about really talented players that are going to have to plan for potentially something different. Plan to maybe play an independent ball. Play, plan to maybe play overseas. Plan to maybe take whatever degree that they have in college or whatever thing they want to study for when they're coming out of high school and maybe go apply that and stay away from baseball. Now, I get the issue about 40 rounds of the Major League Baseball draft. You know, the NFL we know is seven rounds. You know, the NBA, it's been cut down to two rounds. 
We understand that 40 rounds in any professional sports draft is a little bit too much. But to cut it down to five is basically telling, foretelling or foreshadowing what's going to happen when it comes to Commissioner Manfred and his interest in reducing the amount of minor league baseball teams that are going to exist. And we know what the loss of minor league baseball is going to mean for America. Now, you can say what you want about, uh, you know, the pandemic and not going out in public. And some people think maybe we may never go out in public again. But minor league baseball means a lot for small cities. Minor league baseball means a lot for all different towns and cities across the country that don't have a major league baseball team near it. You know, you could live just about anywhere in this country and know that you could have a decent drive within an hour, an hour and a half at the very least of finding a minor league baseball team. Now, listen, you want to be a jerk and uh, say, hey, you know, if you live in this place, it's going to be that far. There's so many miles in a, you know, the, the Pacific Northwest, yada, yada, yada. OK, but the bottom line is you have more options. There's more stadiums. There's more leagues. There's more teams. And if there is, it gives the average baseball fan, no matter where you are in this country, the opportunity to see a game in person. And yes, I'm talking about seeing a game in person because I feel like it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Maybe you're talking about the end of August. Maybe you're talking about September or October, whenever Major League Baseball resumes. Is there a chance that minor league baseball will exist this year? I don't know. I think on the lower levels, we're setting ourselves up with the shorter draft to not have any rookie ball, to not have any low A, to not have you know the New York Penn League. And even, you know, maybe even, you know, a place like the Florida State League in high A. Commissioner Manford wants to reduce the amount of minor league baseball teams. And that means eliminate a lot of minor league baseball players. But here's the one thing that I think will be absolutely fascinating. And I wonder how many teams are going to take up after this. Five rounds at a baseball draft, which means at around pick 167, the draft is going to be over this year. Like I said, last year, there was a total of 1,217 players taken in a draft in 2019. So once again, you do the math, and that's 1,050 players that were taken last year that aren't going to be taken this year. So if I'm thinking about building a baseball team, if I'm the Tampa Bay Rays, if I'm the Oakland Athletics, if I'm the Pittsburgh Pirates, if I'm any one of these teams that you know I've blabbed about for years that don't want to spend money, that don't want to pay their players, that think that baseball players get paid too much money, that are the owner, per se, in the movie Rookie of the Year, that goes to buy four hot dogs for you know uh, Henry Rowan Gardner's family, and tries to pay for it with a dollar. There's a way that maybe you could build a team in the next couple of years. Now, if you start out right now and you decide that this is the way you want to go, you're too cheap to pay real baseball players and you want to build a young farm, I would be studying this draft like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to be studying the fourth and the fifth round of the draft and try to figure out what players should be taken in the fourth round, should be taken in the fifth round. And how many of those players are left undrafted once the draft is concluded? Because I'm getting on the phone with those 
players, and I'm bringing them aboard. I'm bringing them aboard by the boatload. I'm bringing 5, 10, 15, 20 players. And if I'm the Tampa Bay Rays, hey, I'm going out there and I'm taking the top 20 players that didn't get drafted in the, you know, in the first five rounds of this draft, and I'm bringing them aboard my team, and I'm signing them as minor league free agents, as undrafted amateur free agents. And I'm going to stick those players in my minor league teams, whatever minor league teams I'm going to be able to play and have, and that's going to be my future. And I would think that there's a handful of teams that are thinking the same thing. That we're going to study the end of the fourth round going into the fifth round and have it be up to the teams who they want to take when it comes to the fifth round of the draft. When you get to a round pick, 167 or whatever it's going to be once this draft is over. And after that, there should be an amateur free agent signing frenzy. This copyright broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication or reproduction of these to the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show. JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for showing, is similarly prohibited. So, you know, I wanted to make the jump into the NBA, and you know, in, in a time where there's no sports going on right now, you hear me getting a little hyped about the Major League Baseball draft. Maybe a little more hyped than I'd be getting in other years when there's actual baseball to watch. The NFL draft obviously set a record with the millions and millions of people that tuned in to watch it because what else do you got? You know, there's no other sports. You didn't have the NCAA tournament this year. You don't have basketball. You don't have hockey. You don't have, you know, you may not have preseason football. So you're obviously going to be glued to something that is sport oriented. And obviously the thing that has been getting a lot of attention is the Jordan documentary, which we've spoken about on a couple episodes of the show. You got number seven and eight coming this Sunday. And then the the thing will conclude the following Sunday with episodes number nine and 10. And I was wondering, and we'll see if they get into this. I know a lot of it is focused on Jordan and obviously, the name of the documentary, The Last Dance, is about that last season that they were all together in 1998. Bulls win their third championship in a row for the second time. Phil Jackson isn't coming back. Jordan ends up leaving. And I hate to, you know, play the role of the person that's going to ruin it, the spoiler, but there's no more Bulls after the 1998 season. We all know that happened because, hey, we watched it. We were we witnessed it. A lot of us and maybe some younger people don't know enough about it, but we know the facts that that was the last year that Michael Jordan played for the Bulls. And without Michael Jordan, that team was not the same. So we know that this documentary is centering mostly around Michael, but uh, around Phil Jackson, around Scottie Pippen, around Dennis Rodman. And one player that it hasn't mentioned, and I wonder if it will, is a player that did not play a major role on that team that won a lot of championships. And that's Craig Hodges. And I throw the name Craig Hodges out there, a guy that originally was a third-round pick by the San Diego Clippers in a 1982 draft. And to kind of tie one thing to the other of what I was just talking about with the baseball draft, if Craig Hodges was coming out of – you know, Cal State Long Beach planning to play in the NBA, 
he would not have been drafted now because the NBA has reduced their draft from however many rounds they had before to just two rounds. So Craig Hodges comes up, starts a lot of games for San Diego and in Milwaukee early on in his career, averages over 10 points a game three straight years, and then in a trade in the 1987-1988 season goes from the Milwaukee Bucks to the Chicago Bulls. Now, initially, he gets a little bit of PT, but as the Bulls get good and win the championship in 1991 and then go out there and win the championship again in 1992, all Craig Hodges is is a player that's going to play a handful of minutes towards the end of the game. And if you look at the 1991-1992 Chicago Bulls, um, it's sad to see that Craig Hodges at this point of his career does not have much of a role in the rotation. You obviously got Jordan and Pippen and Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright, John Paxson, B.J. Armstrong. Out of those six players, they're playing the majority of the, uh, minutes. But after that, Stacey King, Will Purdue, Cliff Livingston, and Bob Hansen and Scott Williams are all getting time over Craig Hodges. So Craig Hodges, at this point of his career, is the 12th man on the Chicago Bulls team. As we hit what we'll call the halfway point here on a past ball show, once again brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alwisha Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Craig Hodges is the 12th man on this team. Craig Hodges has a little bit of an interest in life after basketball. You know, he thinks of the way he was brought up. He thinks of oppression and he thinks of the unfair treatment of African-American, not just players, but Americans. And he wants to make a stand for it. He wants to speak up about it. He wants to do something about what is to this day still a major problem in this country. And you know what? I got no issue with him doing that. But at some point, and I'd hate to throw this out there and quote The Rock, but you have to know your role. Within your role is your ability to make a difference. And one of the shots that were taken at Michael Jordan in this documentary is that he doesn't choose to use his fame and success to support the African-American race. And it's not like he's not choosing to do it. He's just neglecting to take that extra step, that step that Jackie Robinson took, the step that many African-American athletes have taken to pass on their success to the other younger African-Americans that are out there. Obviously, we know racism and oppression are still existing in this country today. So do I blame Michael Jordan for not taking you know, this a step further? I respect him for being himself and not trying to be something that he never was. If you follow the documentary, if you study anything about Michael Jordan, you know one thing. You know that he is a basketball player. He is an athlete. He's a competitor. He doesn't have the same passion for politics. He doesn't have the same passion for, um, you know, discussion about racism and oppression and he may acknowledge that it exists but he doesn't feel that he was put here to play that role so it's like taking somebody out of whatever employment that they happen to be doing that they love and say here go do this instead 
just because Michael Jordan's black doesn't mean that he has to be a political activist. Now, Craig Hodges wanted to be. The only problem with Craig Hodges is that at this stage of his career in the NBA, where he is at that moment, his voice is not very powerful unless he's got other voices on that team. So when he decides to, and I'll make a long story short here, Craig Hodges, after the Bulls won the championship in 1992, they're second in a row, the second of their six NBA championships. Craig Hodges writes a handwritten letter to the president, to President Bush, Herbert Walker Bush at the time, and basically lays it out, some of the issues that he's seeing, and the fact that he felt that the president and his administration were neglecting the poor and minorities. Maybe they weren't doing enough in his mind, and he was hoping that something could be done about it. Now, that message by itself, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a solid message to put out there, a solid message to put out there when you care. And, And I think it's a great feeling to want to take whatever prosperity you have in any sport that you get to play professionally or any big stage that you get to go on to and try to make a difference. Craig Hodges, up to that point, had done nothing wrong. But the issue that I have with it is the fact that he had some success early on, earlier on in his career. When he's winning the three-point contest in the mid-'80s, when he's having success with the Milwaukee Bucks, when he's a standard rotational player, getting a chance to start a lot of games, play in 20, 30 minutes a game. When his name has a little more stock to it, that may have been the best time for him to drop a line to the president and say, hey, listen, we have to do something. We have to work on something. He may have had a bigger voice within his organization and within a sport that he played to make more of a difference. So the one thing that I'll agree, and I agree, like I said, with the premise of Craig Hodges and his, his what he wants to do to make more of a difference, he ends up being released by the Chicago Bulls after that season. I believe that Craig Hodges was released because he was a 12th man on that roster. You could draft some younger players and work them in and develop them a little more. Craig Hodges at that moment in his, what, his 12th year in the NBA – is a little bit slower. Phil Jackson makes it very obvious that he, he doesn't feel like he can play defense anymore. Yeah, he could go out there and hit a shot. But it was probably a good time for Craig Hodges to move on. The statement that he was trying to make put aside as a basketball player, where he was at that stage of his career, it was time for him to go. And the thing that kind of bothers me the most about this is the fact that the rest of the NBA kind of follows suit and nobody signs him. Craig Hodges' career is over at that moment. You're talking about a guy that could have, at the very least, competed in training camp for a spot on somebody else's roster. And it didn't happen. So I thought that was a bad job. But Craig Hodges gets a little bit bitter as time goes on. He's a little bit bitter over the reason that he feels like he was blackballed from the NBA, which I don't know if he was. He could have had a chance to sign with the Seattle Supersonics. But 
you know, something was nixed at the end there. Did the NBA players, I'm sorry, the NBA executives and the teams and the owners get together and collude and say, you know what, this guy is speaking up about, you know, issues that exist. Do these issues not exist? Maybe it's a bad influence on the other black players in the NBA. So I think of Craig Hodges, and the reason I bring this up is because this is an example of a a Colin Kaepernick-like situation before Colin Kaepernick. This is Cap before Cap. Now, the only difference is what I just said. Craig Hodges, not a very accomplished NBA player at this point of his career, had some success earlier, like I said, was a starter, was in a a very good rotation with the Milwaukee Bucks, was in the three-point contest, winning championships, setting records. You know, he had a pretty good career. But by the time he's in that last season with the Chicago Bulls, he's the 12th man on the roster. Colin Kaepernick played in a Super Bowl. And maybe, maybe things turn out different if Colin Kaepernick and the San Francisco 49ers win that Super Bowl against the Baltimore Ravens. Maybe there isn't a power outage when the 49ers are up at halftime. And the Ravens go out there with a great second half and you know, Ray Lewis and Ed Reed end up walking off into the sunset. Joe Flacco is a Super Bowl champion. Colin Kaepernick isn't. So if Colin Kaepernick is a Super Bowl winning quarterback, does he carry a little more clout when he decides to kneel during the national anthem? Now, Kaepernick obviously has the socks on with, uh, you know, you know, disparaging police officers. Craig Hodges never did anything like that. Craig Hodges is probably a more favorable person with an opinion. If you had a pick, if you're going to be, let's say, if you're a negative on Colin Kaepernick, if you're down on him, if you don't like what he did, if you don't like the stand that he took, if maybe you're just ignorant and you don't understand what he was trying to do in a convoluted way, in a way that, Maybe if he had to do over again, he would have handled it a little differently. Craig Hodges should appeal to more Americans, should appeal to more white Americans. He was was a guy that just had a chance to go meet the president. Chicago Bulls won their second straight NBA championship. What happens when you win a championship in sports? The president of the United States invites you to the Oval Office. He writes down a couple notes. He gives them to the president. He says, listen, I've thought about this. I put this down for you. I'd really like you to read this. Does that get thrown or shown as disrespect to Michael Jordan? Maybe. Because you know what? Michael Jordan's looking to have the president and the people that are in the White House bow down to him. An accomplishment that everybody in that Chicago Bulls organization is proud of. Jordan and Pippen. And Coach Jackson and John Paxton and Bill Cartwright and Horace Grant. All those players were the ones that had something to do with the championship. Craig Hodges is sitting there in street clothes, courtside. So the last thing that any of his teammates want to hear is the 12th man on the bench trying to make a statement about anything. Even if it's something that... We all should do a better job with. Maybe if his points, even if his points were exactly 100% on point, his timing was off. But like I said, Craig Hodges gets bitter 
as time goes by. I agree with him. The NBA blackballed him. He should be compensated. He should have the legitimate authority to throw to, to have a lawsuit to get some sort of compensation for the fact that a team refused to sign him. But when he starts complaining about the three-point contest and the changing of the rules, Craig Hodges believes that the three-point shootout had at the All-Star game is something bigger than the All-Star game. Maybe in his mind it's bigger than the NBA playoffs and the NBA finals. The average person that knows anything about the three-point contest probably doesn't even know 100% of the rules, probably doesn't know 100% about the scoring. But Craig Hodges found something that he can do well, shoot the three ball. Maybe not always in a, in a big game, in a big moment, he hits some shots. But like I said, by 1991, 1992, was relegated to being the 12th man on the bench of the Chicago Bulls. He could hit a series of three balls at the All-Star game. He won a series of championships. He set a record for the most points scored in a three-point shootout. Now he starts complaining sour grapes about the addition of the money ball, basically interfering with his score and his record. Doesn't get any more bitter than that. Now I understand things didn't go right. Maybe he had two or three years left in his career in the National Basketball Association that he feels was robbed from him. And you know what? If he feels that way, I, I'm in agreement. And maybe if he goes back in time, it's not one of those things where, hey, should I have spoken up about how I really feel? It's more about the timing. Now, if he wants to knock Jordan, if he wants to knock the other black players that were playing in the National Basketball Association at this time, I have no issue with it. It was Michael Jordan's decision to not want to make his life or what he was pursuing about race. Craig Hodges did. Unfortunately, Craig Hodges, without any support, ends up kind of overshadowing his teammates that are there to kind of be bowed down to. And I don't think that came off to the way that Craig Hodges wanted it to. He had some points. Hopefully, as he's speaking to kids and speaking to the generation now, he's helping to make the world a better place than it is, to make the United States of America a better place than it is right now. Because like I said, if there's one act of racism, it's too much. We've come a long way, absolutely. You could talk about Martin Luther King and what he had to endure. You could talk about Jackie Robinson, what he, what he had to endure. You could talk about society as it was in the 1960s and the 1940s. And even in generations before that, when we talk about the most unfathomable thing of slavery and human beings actually being used as property. As we live in a, a country now in 2020, that's something that's not going to happen. That's something that nobody is going to accept. When you have an owner like the Clippers owner, Donald Sterling, that is caught on tape saying the things that he ends up saying, there's nobody supporting Donald Sterling. Nobody. No white people, no black people. Nobody supported Donald Sterling and his comments and what he said, even if they were improperly recorded without his permission. 
Donald Sterling was blackballed from the NBA. He was forced to sell his team. Racism is not accepted in society now like it was in 1960 or 1940. We have come a long way. Can we get better? Like I said, if there's one act of racism out there, it's one too many. So what I have time to get into is one more discussion that I wanted to bring up. And I was thinking about a couple careers, one in basketball, one in in baseball. We'll go from basketball back into baseball to finish up the last case that we're talking about. Once again, past ball show, JohnPielli.com, St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I was thinking about the career of Bill Walton. Now, when he broke into the NBA, he was an absolute star. Played at UCLA under John Wooden and was a force when he was in the NBA for the Portland Trailblazers. Ended up going, signing a big contract with the San Diego Clippers, and eventually they moved to Los Angeles. The problem with Bill Walton, as dominant as he was on the court, he just wasn't on the court enough. And Bill Walton was probably robbed of an opportunity to be an all-time player. I think Bill Walton at his best could be compared to, like I said, just at his best, not his whole body of work, but can, can, be, can be compared to a Russell, a Kareem, a Chamberlain. But obviously the problem with Bill Walton is that he only played, what, 11 seasons in the NBA? Missed, what, three full seasons? One because of a holdout, the other two because of injuries, and had a hard time getting in a lot of games. You know, had a good year in 84, 85, his last year with the Los Angeles Clippers and ends up going to the Boston Celtics as a free agent, provides some leadership as a backup to Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale, helps them win an NBA championship. Now, Walton's first four seasons, he's averaging what? You know, 16 and uh, 13 a, a game. And thank you to Basketball Reference for having uh, seven, 17 points, 13 and a half rebounds a game in his first four seasons with the Portland Trailblazers. Trailblazers are going out there. They win an NBA championship. He is becoming one of the stars of the National Basketball Association. Gets involved in a contract dispute. Ends up sitting out the 78-79 season. But partially is dealing with problems with his foot. Ends up having to go through you know, a ton of different operations, and really it's never the same. So you're asking me, why am I bringing up Bill Walton? Like I said, I just gave you, I gave Bill Walton credit for what he was at his best. His first four seasons in the NBA, he was up there with any big man that ever, ever lived. He was as good as Tim Duncan. He was as good as Shaquille O'Neal. He was as good as Russell or Kareem or Wilt. But only for those four seasons or the prorated uh, amount of the four seasons that he actually played in the NBA that he wasn't injured. Bill Walton's problem was injury and injuries cost him his career. And I have a hard time. And listen, the Bill Walton apologist is going to be pretty pissed off at me for saying this, but I don't think Bill Walton's a Hall of Famer. Yes, sir. he was a two time NBA champion. He was a great role player on that Boston team in 80, 80, what, 85, 86. 
Without him, perhaps they don't have the leadership to get themselves through the Houston Rockets and beat the Twin Towers and Ralph Sampson and Hakeem Olajuwon. But was Bill Walton a Hall of Famer? And you heard my discussion about baseball and its Hall of Fame. Baseball has screwed it up the other way by not putting deserving players in. Is basketball's Hall of Fame a little watered down? A couple weeks ago, we spoke about Bill Fitch, the coach of one of the Celtics teams that won an NBA championship. Was kind of average as an NBA head coach. Made it to an NBA Finals, was in fact in the NBA Finals against the Boston Celtics of 85-86 as the head coach of the Houston Rockets. Was he a Hall of Famer? I think he'd fall a little short. Bill Walton, I believe, falls a little short. Great college player. Should he be in a college basketball Hall of Fame? Absolutely. But you're looking at a guy that after his first four seasons with the Portland Trailblazers ended up missing three of the next four seasons. In fact, the next four seasons in the NBA go by and Bill Walton plays in just 14 games. Plays 33 games in 82-83. 55 and 83-84. Has a couple seasons left. He plays in 67 and 84, 85 and 80 with the Celtics in 85, 86. After that, he plays 10 more games and he's done. The guy played 468 games in the National Basketball Association. I'm sorry. There's some great players in the NBA. I don't think of Bill Walton as an all-time great. I think of what could have been. I think of if the injuries didn't take over and dominate his career, that he could have been an all-time great. I don't look at him as a Hall of Famer. So I get into another player. And, you know, this is a little more of a touchy subject. If you remember the Cincinnati Reds and a great red machine in the 1970s, there was a series of really good players on that team, led by Joe Morgan, led by Pete Rose, led by Johnny Bench. Without Bench, without Rose, without Morgan, those Reds teams do not do what they do. And all three belong in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And if I'm going to talk about and add Tony Perez, the first baseman there, if I'm talking about those four players and saying which one of them should not be in Baseball's Hall of Fame, you get where I'm going with it. It would be Tony Perez. Tony Perez was a very good complimentary player. Tony Perez had a very good career. Tony Perez, outside of his time in Cincinnati, was pretty good in his three years in Montreal, was pretty good in his first season with the Boston Red Sox. And after that, over the last six years, was kind of a complimentary player off the bench, a platoon advantage, a right-hand batter that will play against left-hand pitching and play at first base. Pete Rose, in his last couple of years when he was the manager, player manager of the Cincinnati Reds, would platoon with Tony Perez. Two players very much done with the prime or the meat of their careers, and they would just kind of rotate. Rose would play against the righties. Perez would play against the lefties. I think of Tony Perez at his best. He was a seven-time All-Star. He hit 40 home runs in a season. But I think he was a player that was enabled because of the talent that was around him. And like I said, Tony Perez is a person, great person, Hall of Fame person, well-beloved throughout the game. And the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. His son, Eduardo, 
tremendous, tremendous person. Great voice on ESPN, and you hear him on MLB Network. I wonder if Tony Perez would have been as good if he didn't have Bench and Rose and Morgan there with him. Bench was the, the most clutch player. Bench was the player that you would least want up when a game was on the line. He's the guy that would come up with the big hit. He was the major power hitter. Rose was the, the guts. He was he was the, the balls in the taint, for a lack of a better expression. And then Joe Morgan it was just solid all around. He was the guy you couldn't pitch to in a big spot. He had a knowledge of the strike zone. And without Bench, without Rose, without Morgan, those Reds teams aren't what they are. Now, if you wanted to come at me with the argument about Tony Perez, you say, hey, what happened to the big red machine after Rose, I'm sorry, after Tony Perez ends up going to the Montreal Expos? Red Zone won a World Series in 77. North 78, North 79. In fact, don't get themselves back into the playoffs until 1990. Was Tony Perez that integral of a part of that ball club? Because remember, Perez leaving is the beginning of the end. Rose ends up leaving after the 78 season to sign with the Phillies. Eventually, Bench retires. Morgan ends up playing for a couple other different teams to finish out his career. And that Reds team ends up being broken up. Was Tony Perez the glue? And I think that is what got him into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The, the fact that Tony Perez was so well-respected by those other players on that roster, by management up until the day that they got rid of him. And I think he did hold that team together. But was Tony Perez as good as Joe Morgan? Was Tony Perez as good as Pete Rose or Johnny Bench? The answer is no. And when we're talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame that decides and picks and chooses which players they believe should be in the Hall of Fame and doesn't honor the best. Did Pete Rose have a better career than Tony Perez? You know, easy question. He did. And whether you don't like Pete Rose as a person should not impact the fact that he had more hits than anybody in baseball history. A little bit of a recap of the show today. And as always, I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. Spoke a little bit about the core four. Any discussion about the core four, the New York Yankees is sacrilegious when you're not mentioning the likes of Bernie Williams. Outside of Jeter, outside of Mariano, there was no more important part of that, those New York Yankees teams in the late 90s than Bernie Williams. So a core four without Bernie is the most ridiculous, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. MLB draft, five rounds, going from 40 to five. So it's 35 rounds. That's 1,050 players that are not going to be selected in a draft this year. And if you're playing Moneyball, if you're the Athletics, if you're the Rays, if you're the Pirates, I'm studying the fourth and fifth round of this draft, and I'm stockpiling as many players that you think or you would assume would get drafted 
or right on the cusp or the borderline of getting drafted. And I sign them right after this draft's over. I sign them before you even sit back and bring home the five players or so that you took in this year's draft. I go to town on amateur free agents. And that's how I build my team. Spoke about Craig Hodges. Craig Hodges may have had the right message when he wanted to make a point to the president about his administration's treatment of the poor and minorities after the Chicago Bulls won the NBA championship after the 1991-92 season. He ends up kind of looking bad because he's Craig Hodges. He's not Michael Jordan. Craig Hodges is the 12th man on that Chicago Bulls team. There were 11 players that played in more games and averaged more minutes on the court than Craig Hodges on the 1991-92 Chicago Bulls. So without any support, and you can take the angle if you want to knock Michael, if you want to knock Scottie Pippen and those guys for not standing behind Craig Hodges, not making their NBA championship and their success more about the people needing a little more support, a little more for minorities, a little more for the poor. There's nothing wrong with that. But Craig Hodges was basically Colin Kaepernick before Colin Kaepernick, except he didn't have much of a uh, leg to stand on. You know, think about it. If, if Colin Kaepernick was the third-string quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers and barely ever got into a game, would he have as much of a voice as he ended up having? The answer is no. And, of course, Craig Hodges gets a little bit bitter when he starts talking about the three-point contest and making it like, you know, yes, he was probably the greatest three-point shooter in the three-point contest era. But tell me, who won the three-point contest this past year? Does anybody know? The bottom line is it's a sideshow. It's a, it's a distraction. It's something to pass time as you're getting ready to watch the NBA All-Star game. And Craig Hodges to get into, oh, man, they changed the scoring. They're messing with my records. Just comes off as bitter. Bill Walton, Tony Perez, are they worthy of being in the Basketball and Baseball Hall of Fame? Now, they are. They're in. There's no way they can be taken out. I thought the Basketball Hall of Fame is a little bit watered down. We mentioned Bill Fitch. Good coach, but not a Hall of Fame coach. He's in the Hall of Fame. Vlade Divac is in the Hall of Fame. You know, Drazen Petrovic, and, you know, obviously all due respect and, you know, bow down to his life, which obviously was cut very short. He goes in the Hall of Fame. Thurman Munson's not in the Hall of Fame. Lyman Vostok's not in the Hall of Fame. Oscar Tavares is not in the Hall of Fame. Be back with you next week. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church at School in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways. One passion, food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to continue to grow the facial hair up until we end this pandemic and we don't have to leave our house with masks. So as soon as I don't have to wear a mask in public, I'll shave Obviously, it means nothing. Who the hell cares? Be back with you next week. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.